0: According to Kirk Hamilton, video games are the new artistic supermedium. For musicians, this means a lot of opportunities exist to get involved with games at a lot of different levels. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Saban, president of the independent record label, Kill Stars. Today we talk about music in video games with a musician, a designer, a game reviewer, and a composer about what they do and how they got started. It's all coming up on the future of what.
1: Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own
0: business. You're listening to no. the future of what? We're talking to composer Chris Remo. Chris, welcome to the future of what. Thanks for having me. First of all, let me just compliment you on the sound of your Skype. It sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, thanks. I'm using the podcast studio that we use. So see now here in I, the office. Yeah,
0: yeah. Steve Gainer was just telling us about how the track you contributed to the commentary on Gone Home sounded better than everybody else's, <laughs> <laughs> which is as it as it should be. You better, yeah, right? I, I guess it would talk. be sort of
2: embarrassing were, were that not to be the case. Maybe. <laughs>
0: So one of the reasons we're doing this episode about music and video games is so our listening audience, which is made up of of a lot of young musicians and people who want to get into the music business, know that there are other options for musicians than just playing, you know, in a straight rock band. So can you give us the background on how you sort of came to do this for a living?
2: Yeah, sure. It's I mean, it's funny you you say that because I was a music major in college and my goal really was to just be in a rock band. That was That was just my sort of... <laughs> career plan. I had played in bands in, in high school and college and just really loved it. And my path to this job is sort of odd. And I don't know, I don't know if it's necessarily something that could be proactively reproduced. I ended up working as a game journalist starting in my senior year of college, did that for several years, ended up going into game development as a producer and community manager, and now I'm a game designer, and I've also done a number of game soundtracks. So I, I sort of blend a few different things together. And if I had to sort of try and distill some advice out of that, I would say that a really useful thing has been trying to learn outside of your main discipline. So if you're a musician and you want to be involved in games, try and learn about other facets of game development as well, and and try to be knowledgeable about more, more than just the music and audio part of the games, because especially smaller scale games, just been the entirety of my, of my experience as a composer, everyone involved tends to wear multiple hats. And I think having more generalized knowledge and experience really goes a long way and makes you a lot more valuable than if you just have one very specific thing you do.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also, I mean, I think everybody's career trajectory is a little wacky. You know, I think For all of sure. us, if, yeah. if we had to say, like, how did you get here? It'd be like, wow. Well, yep, yep. You know, <laughs> unlike doctors who are like, okay, I went to med school, I did a residency. You know? Right,
2: right. Well, and in the games industry, we have the equivalent of that as well. If you're an engineer, You know, probably you have a computer science degree and, you know, you is a really, really specialized skill set. So, you know, those people often, not always, certainly, but often have a very specific career path. If you're on the sort of more ill-defined creative side of things, it's true. It's typically kind of a weird rambling path.
0: Yeah. So we talked a little bit with Steve Gaynor about Gone Home, which we also have a connection to because my label, Kill Rockstars, provided the songs that they used, the 90s songs.
2: Yeah, that stuff is so awesome.
0: Which was really cool. And, and we love that game, so it was really fun to collaborate on that with Fulbright Company. But you did the ambient music in that game, which is really fun. And Steve was telling us that he did a neat thing where they would put the music in for like three to five minutes and then take it away and then bring it back. So it it's it's very unnerving. Like yeah. I think I think you did a, a beautiful thing there.
2: Oh, thanks so much. The music in Gone Home is interesting because there's like three entirely different kind of soundtracks. And one of them, obviously, as you said, is the actual kind of existing music that exists in the fiction of the game, which and that stuff is so awesome. And then the soundtrack that I wrote sort of has two components. There's the ambient component that you just mentioned, which sort of yeah, comes in and out. I think even almost on a random level, Steve may have talked about that. But I think the interval between when it leaves and comes back might be randomized to some degree, which is which is a cool thing he did. But then there's also all of the music that accompanies the audio logs, and that music is like very very tightly scored to the voiceover. So it was almost like scoring a film where every single second, you know, the music is planned in how it syncs up to the VO, and so the the ambient stuff and the more soundtracky audio log stuff was like completely different and that the ambient stuff was like yeah this could basically happen whenever this is just going to be coming in and out over the game so it's you know very long drawn out really sort of tonal more than anything else and then the other stuff is this like very specifically scored little like 30 to 60 second clips that accompany all the voice so it was working on that game was interesting because it was like being in two entirely different modes of music writing
0: and that's exciting I think that's one of the things that I'm sort of learning here about doing music for video games is to me it, it reminds me of our conversations with people who are producers for a living because producers have to find ways of making sounds you know and i think that that's what seems really interesting about this is it's basically you're you're like okay this is the vibe like how are we going to achieve this it sounds really exciting
2: no totally i think that's a really appropriate analogy especially the process i had on this game and again my my experience as a composer has really been small scale games so it's not as though i've ever had like an orchestra to work with or anything like that so i'm always, i'm really writing for myself i'm really finding the sound in the studio you know akin to a, a producer in that sense And on this game in particular, I had just moved back to San Francisco from Boston where Steve and I had both worked at a studio called Irrational Games. And I didn't have a new full-time job yet. And I didn't even have, I was like literally homeless for (sighs) a year. So I was just floating around between like Craigslist couches. And I was going into this little tiny studio that a couple of us rented to do a podcast that we do. And I would just hole myself up in there starting at like 6 a.m., before I would go and, like, try and find a job or do whatever I was doing on the given day and noodle around with my Fender guitar, I had an electric bass, and then a keyboard. Oh, and an acoustic guitar as well. And I would just sit around finding sounds, like, literally trying to find sounds that felt appropriate to the game until I had sort of amassed this, like, big library of different instrument and effect combos and just little scraps that I sort of just assembled for the whole soundtrack and it really felt like the uh, sort of noodley sitting in your garage in high school. I mean, for me, it was, it was when I was like really into Godspeed, you black emperor bands like that, <laughs> you know, and you just be sort of like, sitting around trying to reproduce that stuff with these big loops that go on forever and layering effects on and sort of just existing in this weird ambient headspace. And working on that soundtrack really felt like that to me. It really felt like being in that super noodly like sound creation mode.
0: And you've done some soundtracks for some other videos as well. So, you know, has that been a similar process in terms of the creativity and basically people are saying this is the vibe. We want you to make it happen.
2: I would say Gone Home was fairly different in that I was not in any way part of the actual game design team on that game. I was in literally a different city. So it was really me going back and forth with Steve over email and sending him stuff. And he would say, oh, you know, what about this? What about that? And I remember very early on, he was like, I don't want any synth in this at all. And I was like, OK, well, sure. And so I just started off not using any synth of any kind which, you know, totally fine. But obviously, like if you've heard the soundtrack by the time the, the game ship, that was just not the case at all. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's really common for composers or musicians who have worked under direction that often the initial direction is just sort of more like an emotional intention than an actual literal description of what the person wants. Mm-hmm. So a lot it was really just like teasing things out and sen- sending them to Steve and then saying a little bit of a different thing. And then eventually you end up in a totally different place. But on the soundtrack I did most recently for a game called Firewatch, like I'm actually a full-time employee of the studio that made that game Campo Santo, so I was also a game designer on the game. And in that case, everything I was doing was sort of much more directly tapped in to the day-to-day development of that game, and I was responsible for actually implementing the music in the game myself as opposed to Gone Home, where obviously Steve implemented what I gave him. So those are like, as far, I would say, as far apart from each other in terms of processes you can come. Like I wasn't sort of, on Gone Home, you know, like I said, I was in this weird, just sort of early morning sitting alone in this like little box tooling around. Whereas on Firewatch, it was like, oh, I'm going into my actual job and working <laughs> on this thing, like right. along with all the other parts of the game that I'm working on, including the story and game design. And so yeah, the, the, they were like, as di- honestly, as different as could be for me. I don't know how that is reflected in how they sound. I mean, maybe they both just sound like the same thing. to, people <laughs> to them, I have, I have, I, like, obviously, I'm not objective when it comes to that. But in terms of how it they felt to me to make and how they were to work on, like, just night and day different.
0: Do you have to play all the instruments yourself, or I mean, what's what's that like? Yeah. Or can you call people in.
2: I've only ever played everything myself, not for any philosophical reason, but just simply because I've. I've just never worked on a soundtrack where I had anything you could call a budget. Right. You know, like it's re- it's really, <laughs> I, I mean, I've so I also did the soundtrack for a game called Space Base DF9. And it's, that's an entire, 100% electronic soundtrack, lots of sort of FM synthesis and really kind of spacey sci-fi 70s and 80s sci-fi sound. And that was really fun. But again, like it was just me... With a bunch of synth stuff obviously gone home and firewatch very a lot more guitar driven a lot of electric piano kind of road style stuff but in all cases they were it was sort of me playing everything literally because it's like well I'm, I'm just in this like little studio here with my instruments and so far it hasn't been the case that i've shown something i'm working on to someone who is, you know, I haven't had the case where I've gotten feedback that is, oh, it would be really great if we had like a string section on this or a horn section or something like that. So, so far, it's just been whatever I've been able to to put together and it's worked out for whatever reason.
0: Do you fantasize about those days, though, when you have like a, you know, huge budget and people could be (laughs) like, yeah, bring in a string section. We need a symphony.
2: Sort of, except honestly, at this point, I've done it so much this way that I kind of feel like insecure about ever giving anything to an ensemble. <laughs> you know, like when I was a music major in school, we had to write for small ensembles just in different classes. But since then, since I graduated from school, I haven't I've, I really haven't written anything for for an ensemble that I myself am not actually in. And so I kind of almost at this point, it's like this self-reinforcing thing where I'm like, oh, I don't know if I, I like I would almost feel silly <laughs> giving someone else stuff that I wrote because it doesn't seem I I think I've like psyched myself into this like really insular place in that regard
0: Well, you wait someone's gonna come along and hand you a giant budget and be like you'll be (laughs) like ah I can find collaborators I swear to God I mean it
2: would be awesome I mean I like don't get me wrong I think that would be really exciting you know who knows Maybe, maybe that'll maybe the opportunity will come along someday
0: well Chris Remo is a game designer and a composer thank you so much for being with us today on the future of what Chris
2: yeah that was a lot of fun thanks for having me on
0: was Super Mario Brothers 2 Underworld by The Advantage. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at K-R-S-F-O-W. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Kirk Hamilton of Kotaku.com. Kirk, welcome to The Future of What?
3: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Me too. So this episode, we're talking about video game music, basically. Mm -hmm. And so you seem like an excellent person to
3: talk to (laughs) since you're
0: quite an authority on video games.
3: Yes, it is an area that I write about (laughs) quite a bit, so...
0: But you also have this interesting twist, which is that you actually are a musician and you have a degree in music.
3: Yes. I worked as a musician for a really long time before making the logical career transition to being a video game critic.
0: Yes. (laughs) Obvious. Very clear. Yes. yes. Why don't you tell us about that process? How did that happen?
3: It was interesting. So I was living in San Francisco for a while out of school. I graduated around in like 2001. I got a jazz degree from University of Miami. So I was a serious business. I'm going to be a professional saxophonist doing that life and teaching jazz and playing gigs and going to jam sessions. And it was cool. I did that for a while and then sort of discovered this blogosphere, they called it back in the day, maybe in 2008, 2009, of people who were writing really smart stuff about video games. And i had always played video games. So I was really drawn to it and thought, oh, this is cool. I had didn't know the game criticism like this even existed. So I kind of just got into it and started reading more of it. And then I kind of realized, you know, I mean, I've always been a writer. I've always liked writing. And I kind of thought, I could probably do this. And so I was still teaching jazz at the time. And I just kind of started a blog. And then really quickly, actually, one thing led to another. And, you know, I started getting freelance gigs to write for people. And I started just kind of realizing pretty early on, I think I can make this work and make a career out of this. And it just, I wound up getting the job offer at Kotaku not that long after that. And kind of just stuck with it ever since then. So I've been doing that for five years now, which is a wow, interesting second career yeah, to have.
0: Yeah, definitely. But you've remained a musician. Yeah. You've released one album and I know that it, it says on your website you're working on <laughs> yeah. another
3: one. Yeah, it's definitely, it's been an interesting challenge. I have all this material out of school. I was a saxophone, you know, flute, clarinet player. And I would still, you know, that's probably the only thing I'm good enough for somebody to pay me to do. But um, I play guitar and sing and play a bunch of instruments and write sort of really elaborate music. And I have all this stuff that I really want to finish, but it's tough because it's a really demanding and creatively rewarding job, which is actually the more draining kind of job I've found because like I get to write every day and I'm, I get to be as creative as I want to with my job, which is really cool and fun. But there are times where I'm trying to write lyrics in particular for songs. And I just basically say, look, I wrote words all day. I don't know. It's hard to shift gears, I guess.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting. I mean, I think this podcast in particular is about the music business. Mm-hmm. We have a large audience of sort of young musicians and mm-hmm. people coming sort of coming into the field. I think it's really good for people to hear that, just to hear that there's other options, you know.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's very, as I get older, obviously, it gets easier and easier to sort of see the the broad trajectory of my career and the different ways that you can feel successful. And I definitely feel successful. I feel really lucky to have the job I have and to get to do it at the level I'm doing it. But then there's always also that, Oh, but what if I could just be, you know, releasing this great album and touring and it's, it's never enough, but that's just sort of like the blessing and the curse of being a creative professional, right? It's never enough. Right. I don't think it's ever enough for anybody. We could
0: talk about that for a long time. Yeah. However, <laughs> we are here to talk about video games. So yes. can you give us an overview since you're very up on it? So what's what's the current trend in video game music?
3: It's interesting. There are a lot of trends because video games are such a broad medium. There's so much there. I kind of, I call them the new artistic super medium, which is a kind of a dumb term that I made up. Basically, when movies happened, they were the first art form to combine a lot of different things, right? Like editing and music and art, like acting performance, visual art, and all of these things kind of came under one umbrella for the first time. Like theater had kind of done the same thing, but now movies added editing to that. And so you had this whole like kind of new super medium that then became this really dominant form for a long time. I feel like video games are doing the same kind of thing because they've taken everything movies do and then added this extra element that is you can interact with them like people actually play them and that's a whole new thing there really hasn't been anything like that before so because of that games have this whole new way of doing music that to me is the most interesting type of video game music so one trend obviously is more and more hollywood composers are getting into video game music if you if a lot of people who listen to this show are professional musicians who want to make money writing music you could definitely do worse than to get into games it's harder now probably than it was even five or ten years ago to break in but if you have a, a voice and are really good and get involved with the right game. That's kind of the most crucial part. Mm-hmm. You can do very well for yourself and get a lot of like followers and just fame and have a really good time. And people will... Actually, listen to your music, which is kind of the most surprising thing about it. Anyway, that's maybe a tangent. Um, <laughs> no, that's good. Anyway, th- there are so many different things going on. So, there are games that are just have cutscenes that are like movies that play in between the interactive parts, and people score those like they score movies. It's the same, you know, and a lot of the music sounds the same, and you'll hear the same influences and musical trends. But then there are games that actually are musical in some way. The way that you play them is musical. And that to me has always been the sort of more interesting. The more interesting trend, I guess.
0: So for this episode, we spoke to Steve Gaynor mm-hmm. from Fulbright. So we actually talked about Gone Home, mm-hmm. which my company licensed a couple oh, songs really? to Oh, really? Oh, okay,
3: cool. So the song that yeah. plays at the end of Gone Home. Is, no, uh,
0: it's actually the two songs from the 90s. Oh, oh, that play on the, yes, 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 right, 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 yes. It was actually like pre-release. Right, because it was Chris's the song licensed. that plays at the end. Right, and, the, and then it's yeah, Chris's the original song. One, right. And we talked to Chris. But we're, we also talked to Spencer Syme from The Advantage. And oh, The cool. Advantage is a band that made a lot of, Noise to some extent in the mid two thousands by covering Nintendo. Oh yeah, music mm-hmm. and there was like a little wave of that. Oh yeah, that's at still the time. a thing. There were I several mean, yeah. bands that did the that. Chip tune bands. Yeah, exactly. And I'm interested in that because it's like it seems like in the early days of video games. I mean, I remember I used to play like adventure and just these really basic games, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the music's all very sort of jaunty and la 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 la. And yep. Is that still done? Are there still games where the music oh, yeah. is just totally...
3: Oh, man. There's a guy named Jake Kaufman, a composer. He goes by Vert. There was a game that came out a year ago called Shovel Knight. And the soundtrack to that game, you got to check it out. It's so good. I think he made the entire thing using NES sounds, yeah. which is a common thing. There's a really cool band called Anamanaguchi that you might have heard of. That yeah. They also they use an, an NES live on stage, which is definitely a in thing to do. Chip's all this really cool DJ. She uses a Game Boy on stage. Yeah, those sounds are still, you know, they're kind of timeless and they've become something that I think a lot of people associate with their childhood. Totally. And then that type of tune, right? Like those old games, like the old NES games, Zelda, Mario, or Adventure, Mm -hmm. they were so simple and the memory restrictions were so severe that there really wasn't room for a lot except for a melody Mm -hmm. that kind of just then repeated over and over and over again. So you kind of got the same effect of a really hooky pop tune repeating over and over again and getting stuck in your head, only it's the Mario Brothers theme. Mm-hmm. Which then, actually, if you go and look at the original Mario Brothers theme, you know, it's actually really advanced and kind of wild, but there are so many people who can just sing that mm-hmm. really advanced, weird, like, Afro-Cuban groove, <laughs> whatever, like that Koji Kondo composed yeah. so many years ago. So that kind of music is definitely, like, will always be be around i think just because we no longer have the technological restrictions anymore obviously they can get a whole symphony orchestra to record video game music but that period of time was so powerful partly because of the restrictions that composers had to work with
0: because i'm thinking about even stuff that was wildly popular like angry birds mm-hmm. like the soundtrack for angry birds is also <laughs> really, really good. iconic and mm-hmm. really good like when you hear it you totally know yep. exactly what that, you're... it's kind
3: of that like klezmery like clarinet yeah. thing yeah is really cool I think it was the London Philharmonic did this collection of arrangements of video game music and they did the Angry Birds theme. And I think it was the first <laughs> time I actually sort of realized that the Angry Birds theme music was really, really good yeah. and listened to it. It's interesting. Part of the reason that some of those games have really iconic soundtracks, I have, this is one of my pet theories, is that. For a long time, games didn't have any spoken audio, mm-hmm. so there was no voiceover. So if you played a Japanese role-playing game like Final Fantasy back in the 90s, Final Fantasy VII or Final Fantasy VI, these games, people really have these emotional connections to them even though the games, there's no talking. The, it's usually translated from Japanese. Sometimes the translation isn't even that good. And so it's this kind of childish dialogue happening and then these really beautiful melodies in the background. And the melodies are so strong and occupy the melodic space. Like, they're not pads. They're not chords. They're not designed to sort of get out of the way of spoken dialogue. They kind of are the dialogue. Mm-hmm. You hear this really soaring melody, and you just read along. And it gives you a really, really different thing than when now in a modern game you've got, you know, famous actors who are all mo talking, and in the background the music is just sort of not as present, because it can't be. You can't have, you know, it's a film scoring thing. Like, you can't have a super present melody while people are trying to talk over it, or it'll yeah. just be too much information.
0: Right. But at the same time, because it is like film, music is now being used to heighten emotion and give cues to the player about what you're supposed to feel in this moment or what is supposed to be happening, you know. Yeah,
3: which can be really effective, you know, and can be used in a lot of different ways. There's a game called Undertale that came out on PC last year that is this really interesting one-man game, sort of a throwback to a game called Earthbound and this kind of... NES era games, and it did some really amazing stuff with. It was another one with no speaking, but it did some amazing things with calling back the themes that were introduced in the beginning. This is something that Japanese games do a lot, where there's this heroic theme, but then later there's a really kind of sad emotional scene, and the heroic theme plays on a music box, Mm -hmm. or in a minor key or something, and it's kind of this, but it's always effective. It always works every time they do it, and in Undertale, it's very, very effective. That sort of thing can be very effective. I used
0: to play a game years ago. I played a game called Clock Tower. Do you remember that game? Is that
3: the one with the killer who's hunting you down? The yeah, guy with the scissors?
0: <laughs> you're a little girl and yeah. you have no weapons. Yeah. You can't do anything except hide. Super scary it was the scariest game I ever played because you can't do anything you can't defend yourself so
3: that actually that type of horror game became popular again and this game called Amnesia The Dark Descent sort of brought it back and now there are a lot of games like that where you don't have even like the crappy gun that you get in Silent Hill or something you just have no weapons and you just have to hide and you're kind of yeah
0: and in that game the danger point is that if she gets too scared Mm -hmm. she'll run out and get killed from her hiding place so you have to like manage her panic (laughs) and they help you do it with the music because Mm -hmm. the music cue comes in when the killer is getting close. Nice. So you're like, okay, now I got to find oh, a hiding I like spot. know how it is.
3: Yeah, that kind of thing can be helpful. I like actually, in horror games, that's helpful, right? When you get the setup, you can always tell it's coming. Right. Or just like in a horror movie. Yeah. But then sometimes they fake you out and you think, you know, you hear the low strings totally. and you think something's coming and then it doesn't. There's something that I've always found and like a lot of those cinematic techniques translate over to video games. But there's this other layer that I'm seeing more and more people talk about that sort of is... Related to the fact that the thing I was talking about, I guess, a minute ago about how you play video games and games themselves are rhythmic musical creations. A lot of my favorite games have a feel to them that is like a physical thing that feels similar to playing drums like, is the closest thing just because your fingers are kind of bouncing around on this controller. And if the game is tuned really well, you have this really incredible push and pull with the systems of the game and it's not directly musical i mean sometimes it is if you're playing a you know an actual rhythmic game like you know rez or thumper or or rock band or something like is actually you're lining up notes Then it is but a lot of times it's not you're just shooting aliens or something but you're doing it in a way that has this kind of punchy rhythm to it and it's something that i think whether it's explicit or not a lot of game designers themselves people who make the games are musicians and understand the musical aspects of what they're making, even though it's not the music that's playing when you're doing that scene. I've always thought that's kind of cool.
0: That's interesting. I feel like it's also cinematic and musical in that video games that I have played seem to have arcs. Like, you know, it gets either like super violent or super active Mm -hmm. and then it mellows out for Mm -hmm. a while and it sort of gives the player this this full range of experiences? Yeah,
3: if they're done well. It's funny, too, because it can be very similar to a badly produced album or a badly mixed album. There are different kinds of noise, right? And in video games, one of the types of noise is the gameplay itself. And if the game is just at 11 the entire time and doesn't have any peaks or valleys, you wind up feeling exhausted by it just like if you or even mastering right if you listen to an album that's been just juiced until it's so loud and like you just kind of can't listen to it even though it's not actually loud music and because it it exhausts you Uh, games can definitely do the same thing and have the same considerations i guess you have to take into account
0: yeah so any other trends that you can think of that are new i mean i know that there are also people i mean there's obviously hollywood composers who are writing and scoring these games as though they were movies. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also... I mean, wasn't there some famous thing where Paul McCartney was writing (laughs) a song for for Destiny. (laughs) Destiny?
3: That was, man, that whole thing was super funny. That was such an odd, partly personal thing, I think, that the composer Marty O'Donnell really just likes Paul McCartney and they wanted to work together on something. And then he wrote this song that all respect to Paul McCartney, not a good song, and um, was really corny. And, wow, oh, man, there's a music video for it where this hologram, Paul McCartney, is singing about hope for the future to Destiny characters. And, like, I love Destiny. It's one of my favorite games ever. But that song was just not, not good. <laughs> there are a few interesting trends. I think there's a, a move toward licensed music in games that's been sort of interesting. I think partly what you were talking about with Gone Home, I'm seeing that in more indie games licensed soundtracks can be really powerful for games like grand theft auto is best known as as having amazing music even though the original score for that game is fine and gets the job done but the real thing you remember is when you drive over the horizon and some amazing song is on the radio because there are people who pick the music are just amazing at it and i feel like i see more indie games doing that even if it's just during the closing credits a really cool song comes on that you've never heard recently uh Telltale game, Tales from the Borderlands, they had this song by a band called First Aid Kit, I think. They're like a Swedish folk duo, and I'd never heard them before. And this killer song comes on during the credits, and I wound up going and buying their album, and I think a whole lot of people discovered them that way. And it seems like I'm seeing more and more of that, of people who have really good taste using licensed music creatively. So that's one trend. That's not so much a composition trend, but that's a sort of musical trend. And then the other one is I think I'm seeing more musicians make games. I'm seeing more... Like, it's easier and easier to make video games now. And I'm seeing more people sit down with Game Maker or, you know, RPG Maker or whatever, one of those sort of easy-to-get tools, and then they make a game and then they compose the music as well. And so Undertale, that guy's a really great composer, the guy who made that game, Toby Fox, brilliant composer who's done music to a lot of other games and then made his own game with music. Or there's a few other people that I can't think of off the top of my head. but I So I'm seeing that more as well, actually, is a lot of young composers they don't just make the music for games, they also make them. And then when they do make music for games, they're able to be more kind of actively involved in the creative process. And it isn't just like, okay, here's kind of what it looks like. You know, here's a demo. Can you just write some music for it? And it's more, I really am involved in the making of this game. And so the music then winds up being an integral part of the game. And that's becoming more and more common, which is super cool because it makes games way better when I think when they're made that way.
0: That's fascinating. I also feel like it's cyclical a little bit because I remember about I don't know. Ten years ago, there was this moment where a lot of video games were really excited about licensing music. Mm-hmm. So, since I run a record label, you know, I got approached a bunch at that time. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was like the early days of Rock Band. Obviously, they mm-hmm. were licensing music yeah, like crazy. Yeah, that was like that era. Yeah, but there were other games, like a lot of Xbox games, that mm-hmm. were that were licensing a lot of music. And then that sort of went away for a while.
3: Yeah, for and for straight music games. So for games like Amplitude and Rock Band and Guitar Hero, I'm seeing a a move toward original music more with those. A really, really cool game that just came out called Thumper. That's This is my game recommendation that people should check out, especially musicians, is a rhythm game. It's like this hellish neon game and it's noise rock created by two people. One is the bass player in a Lightning Bolt, I believe is their name. Oh, yeah, sure. And he's their bass player. And so he's one of the two people who made it. That's kind of actually what I'm talking about. Interesting, um, yeah. You know, musicians making games. They're both ex-harmonics, so they worked on rock band and kind of have a history in this stuff. And that game is this it's all original music. So it's it's like, uh, you know, you have to line up your controller input to the beat and the music is this really aggressive kind of thrash drumming stuff. And it's really, really good and well-tuned, but it's all original music, so there's no more licensing. It's more that just he composed the music, and then they put it in the game. And it, I would say the game is stronger for it, even though it is also fun to play a game where you're rocking out to songs that you actually know. So it's uh, you know, they're kind of different things, but I feel like it's going toward original music now.
0: Cool. Well, are there any trends that you can imagine in, for the future that you'd like to see, which is Man. throwing back to anything in the past? or I wonder. I well, so I, stuff.
3: I wonder about virtual reality because, you know, I'm doing a lot of our VR coverage at Kotaku. I was going to say, I saw your article. There. Yeah, I've been, I mean, I have all these dumb headsets in my apartment, <laughs> and I think they're cool, but they're also kind of first-gen technology, yeah. and it'll be a little while. But, you know, have you ever used one of the new VR headsets?
0: I just used something that my friend brought over that where you're— king kong and you're on top of the empire state building and they're oh, i don't
3: know if i played that one
0: oh they're they're uh, like biplanes shooting nice, at you nice everybody uh-huh. play everybody in my room played it and we uh-huh. all just fell down was like nobody could <laughs> yeah. you, like, lose <laughs> figure your out what's going
3: on it's definitely so you've seen it it's definitely a thing where it's really hard to articulate to people but then when they use one of these things especially like the vive or the oculus rift it's it's pretty ridiculously cool and it seems like okay some kind of this kind of technology where you're inside of a 3D space instead of looking at it on a screen, it's going somewhere. That's going somewhere. And the musical uses for that are really exciting to me just because there are already some pretty cool music games where you have to, you know, use your whole body and they're standardizing all of that stuff. But at some point there'll be like all kinds of cool stuff that'll let you kind of be inside of music or even just stand inside of an orchestra and, you know, conduct it or whatever. Like there are so many easy, cool things they could do with it. I don't know what the trend will be, but I'm definitely interested in seeing where that goes if it, if it does go somewhere. Totally.
0: Totally. Kirk Hamilton, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What?
3: My pleasure to be here.
0: That was Castlevania III, Epitaph by The Advantage. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Steve Gaynor of The Fulbright Company. Steve, welcome to The Future of What.
4: <laughs> hey, thank you for having me. Good so, to be here.
0: I know. I like to have people in the studio so I can look at them.
4: Yeah. I, I walked over from our office real convenient. Woohoo!
0: Yeah, because yeah, we work in the same office.
4: <laughs> yeah, like right right near each other. Yeah, <laughs>
0: So funny. <laughs> so anyway, Fulbright Company is a video game designing company.
4: Yeah. yeah.
0: Tell us what you guys are up to right now.
4: Yeah, we're a small, independent game studio here in Portland. We're currently working on a game called Tacoma, which is a story game that takes place on a space station. And then the reason I first met you is because our last game before this was called Gone Home, and it's a game about exploring a family's house in the 90s. And to get that time period across, you really need some good, recognizable 90s music. (laughs) So, you know, our games are really about letting the player explore a place that contains a story and has a sense of its own kind of identity and for you to discover that as you play.
0: Cool, so you guys licensed some music from Kill Rock Stars for that. Yeah. Which was really cool and so then people, that music plays in the video game. Yeah. And so that's one way that music gets into video games but there's another way which is that people actually compose for video games. Right. So have you guys worked with composers or how does that work?
4: Yeah, it's really a mix of both so in Gone Home, all of the licensed music was all diegetic. So you would actually find cassette tapes in the game and put them in a cassette player and be hearing them in the world. And they were supposed to be, you know, part of that world you were exploring. And then the other half of the music was, like you said, by a composer that we worked with, who's a friend of mine named Chris Remo, and he's done music for a lot of other video games. And that's the music that plays when you hear one of the characters reading one of their diary entries, or you hear this other sort of subjective level of the story, it's backed by, yeah, this composed music that's really there as a custom-built piece of music to reinforce the mood of that part of the story that you're encountering.
0: Right, so, I mean, music is pretty important to video games, right? That It seems like it would be a pretty big part.
4: Yeah, for sure, I mean, it, you know, it's it's like scoring a film or if you're watching a TV show, you know, if you were to watch a lot of things that, that we see on any given day and just turn the music off, it can make a scene completely different. And I think that's, that's true in video games as well.
0: Isn't that interesting? It's funny to remember that music is like truly the soundtrack of our lives.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the soundtrack of any of the kind of media we make if we're if we're kind of in that business. I mean, I've certainly seen, like, I, I took some film classes in college. I remember in college there was some comparison pieces of, like, here's a famous movie scene and then just remove whatever the Jaws theme from it or the Psycho theme from the shower scene or something. And it's like, obviously, what's on screen visually and, and with the sound effects and everything has a big impact. But when you take away that other layer of music is really capable of expressing tone and emotion in ways that are really intuitive to us without being obvious until you take it away, which is really fascinating. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, yeah, listening to anything with the sound off always is a little strange.
4: Yeah, and the interesting thing is in, in a movie, when you buy, you know, when you watch it on Netflix or buy a DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, generally, it's one experience, right? You see it, you hear it, it's what was intended to be on screen, but in games, since it's a piece of software, there's tons of options and you can turn off voice and you can turn off music and you change the volumes of sound effects and stuff. And I think it just kind of comes out of the expectations of like, this is a a piece of digital software. I should be able to adjust the settings the way I want. But it means that you can play a game with the music turned off and actually have that comparative experience. But as the creator of the thing, you're thinking of it, like if somebody just starts this and has kind of my intended experience of it, here's what it'll all add up to, you know?
0: Interesting. So were you a big gamer as a kid?
4: Yeah, yeah, I grew up playing games and I've been in the games industry for over 10 years now. So, yeah, yeah, big part of my life.
0: What did you like? Like what were what were your systems growing up?
4: Well, I had a Commodore 64 computer like in my room since before I can remember and then I was a Nintendo kid, so I had an NES. And then the big turn for me getting back into computer games is Maniac Mansion is an adventure, like a point and click adventure game from the 80s that was a computer game, but they made a Nintendo version of it. And I played that, which is like very different from most Nintendo games. It's not like running and jumping and shooting. It's like, sounds familiar, gone home. You're in a house and you're trying to figure out like the mystery that happened in this house. And my next door neighbor was like, if you like that game, My dad has a bunch more like that on his computer, and so I kind of got back into computer games and, like, LucasArts Adventures, like Monkey Island and stuff like that at that time. Uh,
0: Yeah, because I I used to play Indiana Jones in the... Secret of Atlantis yeah. or something, yep. which is exactly like that. It was like a searching and yeah. finding game. I really liked that. That's
4: one of those classic era, early 90s LucasArts games. Yeah. And so I was really lucky to, as I was growing up, be exposed to Nintendo and PlayStation and computer games and kind of have, I think, a pretty broad exposure to a lot of different kinds of games as I was growing up.
0: Yeah. We also spoke for this program to Spencer Syme from The Advantage.
4: Oh, Yeah. You know that band? (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. So that's, I mean, it's just funny to think that music plays such a big role that there were whole bands came out of that that actually just played Nintendo songs. Right,
4: yeah. I mean, I think it's it's one of those things that's interesting as the media that was made kind of lives for longer and the people who've experienced it when they were younger, get older, there's that process of kind of being like, well, we played this when we were kids, but actually... The composition of this game's soundtrack was really amazing. Like it was a fantastic piece of music and being able to highlight that and dig that out and kind of put that into its own forum, I think is really cool.
0: Does that put pressure on game designers though for like, God, we gotta make like music that's gonna really stand the test of time like, thirty <laughs> years from now, people are gonna hear the soundtrack and be like, Oh, that reminds me of that awesome game?
4: <laughs> I mean, I, I hope so. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm sure it depends on what you're you're working on, but I think that, you know, the highest praise you can kind of receive as someone who creates music or anything that, you know, any kind of media that people might encounter is like, yeah, if people still care about this 20, 30 years from now, you know, if, if you're a musician and your album is being reissued, you know, 30 years later, then that, like, that means that it really resonated with people. And so, I, you know, I think that that's how you look at making a game and I'm sure, you know, composing the music for any part of a thing that you make. I think that if at its best, you're like, I hope that people will still think this is worth you know, caring about further down the line.
0: Now I remember playing Gone Home and I can't remember exactly, but I have this sense that the music just as you walked around was like a little creepy. <laughs> so that you felt a little unnerved.
4: The whole game the whole is time. A little bit creepy. Uh, Which is I thought <laughs> <all the time. laughs> really great
0: because I was thinking, you know, if, if I were to turn the sound off and just walk around in this house, it wouldn't seem scary at all.
4: Yeah, you know, I sound design and environment design and everything all really adds up to that. You know, Gone Home, we really kind of stack the deck because you're literally in an abandoned mansion on a dark and stormy night. Like, you know, yeah. we're, we're setting you up to not be super comfortable. And then, you know, we play some like randomized like creaking sounds and stuff. And there's a, yeah, there's a rainstorm going out going on outside and occasionally there's a thunder strike and everything. But yeah, then we also have this ambient music that's sort of hanging out with you during that that general exploration process. And a couple things that I thought were important about that are A, it's not playing constantly. So the ambient track is, I think, maybe like three to five minutes long and it plays. And then there's a randomized amount of time between, I think like, yeah, another three and five minutes before it'll start playing again. So there's kind of this rhythm of sometimes you are exploring and it's just you and the rain and and your own footsteps and then this music kind of drifts in and then drifts back out and then the other side of it is halfway through the game the ambient track switches without us like announcing it but our composer Chris Remo who yeah is a fantastic musician worked with me really directly on the music that was used for each of the audio diaries but then he gave us one ambient track that w- you know was what we used and I was like I think we need to have a change so it's not too constant over the entire play time and so in the back half I was like we need a different ambient track but very small team he was just kind of helping us out it was like you know we we made this game in our basement of our house in northeast Portland and so I just went into Audacity and reversed the direction of the first ambient track, just played it backwards and and used that for, because it's like a very kind of like, almost like droney, like Twin Peaks kind of synth, you know, background. And so Mm -hmm. it didn't sound like if you played a guitar track backwards, it just, but it adds another layer to that sort of slight feeling of unease where there's just something that's in reverse subconsciously, you know, and I think it puts you into a different expectation space, you know? Yeah.
0: I find that so interesting. I mean, that game was so fun for me. I know I played it straight through. I didn't stop. Cool. Is that... I would assume that most people play games like that.
4: Yeah, I mean, Gone Home is only two or three hours long, probably depending on, well, A, how much detail you're looking to get into, and B, it it uses, like, first-person shooter controls, and so I know that there's... It's cool to know that there's a lot of people who haven't played, like, a first-person game like that before, and Gone Home is one of their first games where they're like, oh, you move... And look, and it's, you know, there, there's this whole learning curve for that. So, also, yeah, just depending on how good you are at like navigating the space. But, you know, an average playtime is, yeah, probably a few hours long. And that was really our focus in building the story was to say, we want something that works as a unit. You know, it works as something where you start and you can really dig all the way into it and then feel you know, a sense of resolution when, when it's all wrapped up as a piece. And I think that, you know, plenty of people also probably played over like a couple of nights or something, you know, like I'll play for an hour, I'm going to put this down, they come back to it. But unlike a lot of games where it is sort of like, okay, I'm playing this thing for weeks, you know, this is like dozens of hours long. We really wanted to, to make something that felt very self-contained. And yeah, I think that's probably reinforced if you do kind of play it in a pretty short time period going through the whole thing.
0: So your new game, Tacoma, is it similar, or did you guys go in a different direction with this one?
4: Well, it is a further exploration kind of built on what we did with Gone Home. So it is a first-person game. It is about exploring and finding the story in this setting. But we knew we didn't want to say, like, you know, it's a different place with different story stuff in it, but you do all the same stuff. But we wanted to see how we could find another angle on that that was something that we hadn't seen before but that was something that we felt like we could actually do. It took us a while to get there. So one of the advantages of the game taking place in like a nearish future setting. So Tacoma takes place like 75 years from now. And it takes place on the space station where what we're positing is that the crew uses like augmented reality technology throughout their duties and everything. So it's like they see digital information kind of overlaid on the real world. And what we're using that for is to say that the station itself is constantly monitoring the crew and it's recorded moments that happened in their lives before you arrived and you can replay those and they're basically 3d recordings of stuff that happened in the room that you're in but before you got there and it's not purely observation where you come in and you watch a little scene of people doing something and you're like okay I get it and you move on we made the point of having these scenes have all of the characters on the crew kind of spread throughout a larger space and have an interconnected scene where, you know, there might be two people having a conversation in the kitchen and somebody else checking their email in their office and somebody else at the dining table talking about something else. And you as the player can only be in one place at one time. But since these are digital recordings, you can actually rewind and fast forward and move through the timeline of everything that's happening and then go somewhere else in the station see what's happening there and kind of reconstruct the entire, you know, moment in this crew's life at this time. And so it's, it's a different interactive way of exploring and reconstructing this narrative as you play but that's that is like enabled directly by being this kind of futuristic setting you know because the reason that we set gone home in 1995 was so we could say okay nobody has cell phones the family could plausibly not have a computer with the internet. You know, we we do have cassette tapes and we have notes that people left for each other on the fridge because that's how you would, you know, there's, there's right. paper that was sent home from the office, not just like an email in somebody's inbox. Right. So if we're gonna go the opposite way and say, we're in a futuristic setting, we're in this like digital world, how do we make that a part of what you're doing as the player?
0: Cool. And I'm assuming you're not licensing any actual songs since it's set in the future.
4: It, it's an interesting challenge. We, we've, we've pulled one song, That we wanted to have a character playing on like the acoustic guitar in their bunk but unlike gone home getting like an extensive licensed soundtrack would actually be kind of counter to the experience you know if, if the game is set in the past and you have music that that comes from that time or sounds like it's from that time it reinforces that whereas if you're in the future and you have a bunch of licensed music it's kind of like It's weird how these people are all into this 20th century (laughs) classic music all the time. So for us, it was like we want to have like one kind of reach into the past. And we are using some like classical music for some kind of ambient music in the station itself. But it kind of makes you feel less like you're in the future if there's a bunch of familiar music, I think, in the scenes.
0: Definitely. So did you use Chris again to do the music in this game, the ambient music?
4: Right now we're working with Patrick Balthrop, who is a sound designer that has his own studio up in Seattle. He and I worked together in Boston on Bioshock Infinite, and he's doing our sound design. And he played the piano for the classical stuff that we have in the game. And he's done some ambient stuff for us. But in the game, we actually don't have, at least right now, who knows, but we don't have like ambient music tracks in the background he's been doing the ambient sound bed of like what being in the station sounds like.
0: Does it have the classic Star Wars? Mm, there, like there's there, there's
4: or... some like engine hum. Yeah. But the most interesting thing I think that he's doing is we wanted to say, how do we make this feel like otherworldly, but that it comes from electronics and it comes from technology. So he's been using contact mics with EMF pickup on them and actually recording the electromagnetic field sounds from like macbooks and other pieces of digital technology and and using the mics that he has it comes through as these sort of like ambient droney kind of waves of sound and using those as part of the background of like what everything all the other sound comes up out of which i think is really fascinating cool and so yeah i think because that kind of music has less of an emphasis in what we're doing this time it'll probably more be like growing up out of the sound of the place itself than feeling like oh and now i'm hearing background music you know what I mean
0: yeah now I can't wait to listen to this game
4: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's when we play it I feel like you do feel like you're surrounded by this place that is not quite like a place that you've ever been to before and a lot of that comes from the sound yeah
3: wow
0: so when is Tacoma due when's that coming
4: out we are aiming for next spring so spring 2017 probably later spring you know we're still kind of in the guts of putting the thing on screen but we're on a good track we got a lot left to do but early mid next year
0: Cool. Well, Steve Gaynor of the Fulbright Company, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: That was Blaster Master Stage 2 by The Advantage. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to musician Spencer Syme. Spencer, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I wanted to talk to you today because we are talking about video game music, the music that's played in video games, And then your band, The Advantage, is an amazing example of bands that actually played music from video games, which is kind of like a weird meta take on the whole
1: thing. Yes, it is.
0: (laughs) So how did you decide to start doing this?
1: I had always really wanted to do it. I guess maybe at the time that I was really wanting to do it, I didn't feel I was proficient enough. I also didn't have any real training on guitar. I was self-taught, so all complicated stuff. All has to do with, you know, scales and things that you learn in theory and all that stuff. And so I guess I'd always really wanted to do it, but never really knew exactly how to. And then junior year of high school, I met these two kids that were a year or two younger than me that were already starting to learn some of the songs on their own on guitar and bass. Wow. And I was just learning how to play drums. And I figured... The drum stuff is a lot easier to to pick up and go with than the guitar stuff, so maybe let them do the guitar stuff and I can play drums. So I asked them if I could start playing with them, and they said okay.
0: I think it's so interesting because I grew up with video games too, and it's like very ubiquitous for a certain age group and demographic that you just spend a ton of your free time playing video games. Mm -hmm. But the idea of playing the music from the video games is funny to me because you know some of that music is really complicated. Like some of it is really like doot, 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 but a lot of it is, is kind of crazy. And, and, you know, the music that you guys played in in the Advantage is tough. It's not straightforward.
1: I know. I definitely (laughs) have the easiest job in the group for sure. Yeah. Some of that stuff is crazy because they were trying to, you know, on very ancient equipment with only four channels to work with, they're really trying to do stuff that sounded like current music you know like crazy metal solos and all these you know crazy effects and they didn't really have all the technology at their disposal to make a sine wave or a square wave or triangle wave sound like you know the shredding guitar stuff that they wanted to so they would employ these various techniques that worked but then trying to do them on guitar where you're you're kind of creating delay by one guitar playing like a 64th of a second behind the other guitar is you know that stuff like that was the hardest for those guys to get right but then you know they practiced hard enough and got it together so like i said i had the easiest job yeah
0: it's interesting because it wasn't just you guys i mean there's sort of this little genre rose up that got called nintendo core Mm -hmm. with other bands as well as you guys doing the same thing and it was this was sort of the early 2000s and it kind of took off for a little while there it was like a movement
1: Yeah. Well, because at the time we weren't really aware of any other bands. And then by the time we got another guitarist, you know, and kind of had the full lineup, two guitars, bass, and drums, you know, the full lineup to actually be able to reproduce this stuff and more searches and all around. And we found one other band. This was in 1998 when we started. Mm, And the other band was the Mini Books. So we're like, oh, whoa, crazy. There's another band. And we listened to them. We're like, oh, cool. Well, they're Kind of doing a different take on it where they're kind of doing it more in like a metal way and i was like that works for us because kids you know probably didn't have money for all the crazy effects and everything plus we kind of liked the idea of trying to reproduce it in the most accurate way possible as far as it you know the, the way that it sounded coming off the machine so for the most part it was just clean guitars maybe sometimes a little bit dirty but no real effects as far as like chorus or reverbs or delays or anything like that so it was cool. We were both kind of doing our own thing, and then yeah, like you said, the other bands started doing it, and you know, it became a movement. Yeah, I guess that's kind of when we were starting to almost kind of transition out of it, or you know, get get involved with our more serious projects that we wrote, you know, original music and on the side, I guess.
0: Right, and one of those bands for you was the band Hella. Yes, yeah, great band. So, what was interesting to me is that some of the bands that sort of formed that Nintendo core scene added vocals. But you guys never did. You stayed with the clean, just instrumental-only sound. And I think that was one of the things that was also really interesting, because for any band, choosing to be instrumental is always a really interesting choice.
1: Well, I guess I never had a choice of any of that stuff, because we were always originally so dedicated, just making it to... Literally, note for note, exactly what it is on the game didn't really make sense to do that for us, at least. Now, there's been folks in the past, like our good friend Graham, a few years ago, took a lot of the old Advantage recordings and actually fully recorded vocals on them. (laughs) Just kind of for fun. And it it turned out cool. And it sounds it does sound cool like that. But it's, you know, it's not really what we were trying to uh, do the lineup that we had going on. Right, absolutely.
0: And now there is a little bit of a resurgence of interest in this, and you guys have been playing again, right?
1: We've been playing around with the idea of playing again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that was wishful thinking on my part. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I haven't actually, I mean, at this point, everybody lives in cities and, you know, would totally be down to play and do some touring and things, but obviously we can't really get together and relearn all this stuff for like a show or two. So if, if we were able to get a tour together and maybe make a new EP and whatever and kind of do it as a package deal, I think we would definitely be into that.
0: Awesome. Well, I certainly hope it happens because I want to see it.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too. It's been a while. Totally.
0: Spencer Syme is the musician. And thanks so much, Spencer, for being on The Future of What.
1: Thanks, Portia. Thanks for having me.
0: And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard The Advantage and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week.